in general, when you, uh, when you, when you are pregnant, they're the sort of first thing that happens almost is people are like, okay, here are the list of things that you can't do and the list of things that you should do. And I am a person who likes to ask why. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Emily Oster is an economics professor at Brown University. I first met her when she was completing her PhD at Harvard, where she graduated in 2006, before taking a job at the University of Chicago. Emily's research interests are extraordinarily broad, from the impact of television on gender equality in India to how people change their eating patterns after being diagnosed with diabetes. But in the public arena, she's best known for two books, Expecting Better and Crib Sheet, both of which discuss a data-driven approach to decision-making in pregnancy and parenting. And it's these books we'll spend most of our time discussing today, both for their wisdom and for the wise way that Emily goes about gathering evidence to make better decisions. Emily, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's nice to talk to you. So your parents were economists, but not just any economists. Um, your mum, Sharon Oster, works on business strategy and nonprofit organisation management, first woman to receive tenure at the Yale School of Management. Um, your dad, Ray Fair, is a macroeconomist, um, uh, but my favourite bit of his research is uh, his analysis of the rate at which runners slow down as they age, which he's just uh, updated last year. Um, what was it like to grow up with economist parents, and, and really good economists? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. So I think when you're inside your family, you think your family is regular and normal, um, and then sometimes when you... Uh, when when then you step out of it, you're like, wow, there were some unusual features. And so I think for, for me, the one thing was, uh, was in, it, there's a lot of use of economics in everyday life in my, in my childhood. So, you know, the answer to the question, like, why don't we go grocery shopping at the grocery store? Why do you order groceries? Was, oh, well, my opportunity cost of time is very high. As opposed to, you know, which of course I recall being like, oh, okay, of course, like that's an excellent explanation. But when you say that to other people, they're like, wow, your family must have been really weird. Um, but they were very good parents. <laughs> Did you always want to be an economist? No, I actually, um, I, I was always very interested in, in research, uh, but for a long time I thought I would... Uh, I would do something more science oriented, um, and then at some point in college, I realized that uh, that you know the the family business, as we say, was was calling. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and on the topic of uh, parenting research, you were a subject of a rather interesting experiment by Catherine Nelson when you were uh, two years old. Can you tell us a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah. So, um, so at some point when I was just just shy of two, my parents were at a at a, a dinner party, I guess that you have to go to if you're a professor um, with some other professors and. Uh, one of the economists, one of the wives of one of the economists there as a, was a child development researcher. And so she, uh, she was interested in, in kids' uh, vocalizations in the, in the crib, basically when kids talk to, to themselves. And that was something that I did a lot as a kid. 
And so my parents offered to, to audio tape, they used to use a tape recorder to record all the stuff I was saying to myself in the crib. And, and ultimately this uh, researcher and some other, other people that she worked with ended up writing a book that's sort of all about the kind of language development of a, of a little kid using these, these tapes of me. It's not that it's not that interesting. I mean, I I didn't I don't find the book that interesting. Although I like the parts that are about me, I've I've never managed to get quite into the like weeds of linguistic development. And it also seems to me that the book Narratives from the Crib, which uh, was uh, reprinted recently with a foreword by you, um, is is almost the antithesis of the way you approach research. Uh, to uh, to draw a broad conclusion from a sample size of one seems the opposite of what I think of as ostomics. <laughs> yeah, although I will say um, I will say that I think in the particular case of this of the what they're trying to do, I can see the value in having a huge amount of data on one person because they're very interested in the order with which things are things are done linguistically, as opposed to, I think it would be a particularly weird way to draw conclusions about like, what is the, what is the age at which children learn to do X? Because of course, you don't know if I'm like the typical kid on this or, or not. But some of, the, some of these things like, does the past appear before the future in the language? I can see why you'd want to go deep into one, one observation, but it's certainly not the same way that I, that I do most of my research. Mm. So let's dive into Expecting Better, uh, your 2013 book, subtitled Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know. Uh, I've got to say, I I love the book. Um, I have four copies just sitting in my cupboard, waiting for one of my data-driven friends to tell me they've fallen pregnant for the first time, and so I can uh, drop one of these books into their their hands. Um, You said you were prompted to write the book because of a frustration with the way the literature was as you read it when you fell pregnant yourself what was that frustration so i think in, you know in general when you uh, when you when you are pregnant there the sort of first thing that happens almost is people are like okay here are the list of things that you can't do and the list of things that you should do and i am a person who likes to ask why Um, and particularly in this case where they're actually, you would get different recommendations from different sources. So a question like, can I have a cup of coffee? You know, some people would say you can Mm. have as much as you want. Some of these sources said you can, cannot have any. And so I, I was like, okay, can you tell me why? And, and there wasn't any source where I could really get the answer to, to why are the recommendations what they are? Why are they sometimes disagreeing? What is the reason to be concerned? And so in a lot of these questions, I, I started to spend a bunch of time really trying to dive in literature. And it turns out, you know, a lot of the issues that come up in those analyses are sort of the same issues uh, that, that come up in, um, in the kinds of you know, work I do in, in economics. So my training was kind of in some ways pretty well suited to, to thinking about a lot of these issues. I think coffee is my favorite example in the book because uh, you talk there about what we economists refer to as selection effects and, and not just the socioeconomic effects, but the nausea yeah. effect. Can you say a little bit more about why the observational studies might have been giving us the Yeah, so answer? I actually, I, sh- I share your view. I think a lot of economists like this because it's, it's in some ways like the most interesting uh, methodological problem. So, so the issue is with coffee, we're, we're concerned about the risk of miscarriage and whether coffee consumption increases that risk. 
And there's basically two problems. So one is that, um, that there are other things that increase the risk of miscarriage. A notable one is maternal age, but also smoking. And women who drink coffee in, in general are both more likely to smoke and are on average older. And so when you're just comparing people who drink coffee to those who, who don't, uh, you have this first problem that you know they're they're different in these other ways, and and those are associated with with the coffee drinking and with with miscarriage, and that's a problem you have in a lot of these places. In the particular case of coffee, there is an additional problem, which is that women who are more nauseous are less likely to drink coffee, partly because coffee is just something that, like, is not something you want to drink when you're not feeling good. Um, but yes. nausea also is associated with, with a healthy pregnancy. I mean, it's okay if you're not nauseous, but on average, nausea is, a, is sort of a good, a good sign. And so that means that, that basically, unless you can also see really detailed information about people's nausea, you're going you're gonna to mistakenly attribute miscarriage to coffee rather than to nausea. And I, the, one of the ways I say it in the book is like, if you feel good enough to have eight cups of coffee a day, that is uh, not a good sign independent of the coffee. And it's actually very hard to learn about whether coffee is particularly bad or not. But I think ultimately the, the data suggests that certainly some coffee is fine. And, and whether you want to draw the line at like six cups a day is, is more ambiguous. But since that's well outside what most people are thinking about, it's probably a little bit less relevant. And you also talk there too about the notion that perhaps there's not a single right answer and maybe it might turn on how much you really love coffee and trading off small, very small risks uh, or uh, uncertain risks to the baby against uh, how happy mum will be to have the right amount of coffee. Yeah, and I think this comes up, this issue of, of sort of trading off preferences and accepting that, you know, you might, that it might be worth it to take some some risk because, you know, these risks may be very small relative to the uh, to, to the benefits, to, to the, the parents, uh, that this comes up in both books that, that sort of, I feel like a lot of our discussions around pregnancy and parenting sort of assume that, that the parents have no preferences and that there's nothing that, that they want. Um, and that, that sometimes we need to recognize that, um, that that's, that's not always the case, that we should, we should put some value on, on everyone in the family, not just the baby. Now, moving on to alcohol, for which I think you note that uh, a number of the key studies are Australian. Uh, what does the research evidence tell us about uh, drinking while you're pregnant? So I think the, the first thing to say here is that, that the, first, the first thing that the research says is that, that uh, drinking a lot while you're pregnant, binge drinking, is really dangerous um, and that it's associated with all kinds of uh, negative, uh, negative outcomes. But what I try to do in the book is, is think about the question of um, of occasional drinking and, you know, is it, uh, what does the evidence say about having, say, you know, one drink every, you know, a few drinks a week during the second and third trimesters? Um, and, and there, I think that when we look at the best evidence, some of which does come from, from Australia, uh, it does not look like there are negative impacts uh, of, of occasional drinking on the, the baby. So again, this is a place where I think some people look at that evidence and say, you know what, like I, I, it's just not worth it for me. I, I'm not, that's not, I'm not comfortable with that. And some people will say, okay, you know, maybe I'll have a, a couple of glasses of wine on, you know, on a special occasion, because I think that that's something that would, you know, that, that would be within what, what I'm willing to do. And so I think it's useful there to look at the, to look at the data. And I think partly because at least in the U S 
um, a lot of uh, obstetricians will kind of tell their patients like, oh, it's okay to have a little bit. Um, but since the official recommendations are so stringent that you shouldn't have any, I think people often find themselves again in this place of like, well, why do you say that it's okay to have a little bit when they, like, why is that at odds with the official recommendation? I think it's useful to say, you know, here's what the, here's what the evidence says, here's why there might be, uh, there might be these different recommendations and you can then decide for yourself what, you know, kind of what is, what is going to be the choice for you. And you've been criticised uh, for for this. You know, you've got a, a few critics for uh, for <laughs> expecting better, but th- this recommendation in particular is, uh, has has been criticised. Um, and one of the arguments that gets made uh, is that uh, we shouldn't be telling women that uh, pregnant women that some drinking is okay uh, because of the risk that some drinking will turn into a lot of drinking. Uh, what's your view about that? I mean. I- you know, I think first, the question of what should policy be as opposed to what does the data say is actually not that obvious. And so I think that there are, there are sort of considerations that we have when we make official policies that go beyond uh, that go beyond the question of the data. And fortunately for me, I'm not in charge of making official policies. But I, I am a little bit uncomfortable with this, I, with this idea. My party just lost an election in Australia, right. so we're, I'm not responsible for it. <laughs> um, but, um, but I am a little bit uncomfortable with this, I, this idea that somehow like women cannot be trusted with their, uh, you know, with, with their choices and that we should, we should hide information in, because it will be misused. Yeah. I think that that's in some ways is not, that's not respectful. Tobacco? Uh, do you uh, do you find the same, uh, same same sort of thing there? Are you uh, concerned about the official recommendations, or do you go with the official body? No, I think on the on the tobacco, I think we go with the official body that uh, that smoking during pregnancy uh, or actually outside of pregnancy is uh, is not good. And and if you know if women can can quit, it's of course it's quite difficult to quit smoking. But uh, but if if you are smoking, it is a, during pregnancy is a good time to try. There are actually pretty strongly demonstrated effects on, on birth weight. And there actually are some negative effects on the kids uh, on, even after the baby is, is born. So pregnancy is a good push to quit smoking. What about the, uh, the huge list of foods that uh, pregnant women are told to avoid? Uh, soft cheeses? Uh, it's, it's so uh, here I, I spend a lot of time trying to help people understand why we have these restrictions on foods. Um, and so soft cheeses are one, like unpasteurized soft cheese can carry listeria. It's, it's not super common, um, but you know, I think that, that it, is, it is something that I avoided, um, not all soft cheese, but just soft cheese that wasn't pasteurized. Um, but then some of the things you hear, like you know, all deli meats should be microwaved, or maybe you guys don't have that one, but uh, you know, sushi should be avoided. These are not things that, that are particularly well supported in the data. There isn't really any reason to avoid sushi. I mean, you should try not to eat spoiled sushi, but that, that's something you should be doing when you're not pregnant also. Uh, and deli meats, I think you come down on the view that uh, you avoided turkey, but uh, didn't worry too much about other deli meats. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, what about fish? Uh, you talk about the uh, the mercury versus omega three uh, trade. Yeah, so I, what are the, what are the implications? I think of that? a lot of people, you know, you sort of hear about fish. On the one hand, like fish is good for brain development. On the other hand, it may have have mercury. And I I try to 
uh, those things are both tr true. Um, and But of course, different fish have different amounts of this. So there are some kinds of fish um, like shark uh, or swordfish, which have a lot of mercury because the fish is very big um, and relatively limited omega-3s. And so, you know, that's probably not the best fish choice. Um, but then there are some little fishes like herring or sardines where they actually have a lot of omega-3s and almost no mercury. And so those are, those are better those are better choices. Um, I think a lot of, in the end, a lot of women end up thinking, oh, you know what, I'm not going to have any fish at all, which is actually not a particularly good, uh, not a particularly good decision because even, uh, you know, even if you had a little bit of some of these high mercury fish, that's not that, that much mercury. So I think we should not be like afraid of fish. Fish is a good, fish is good for you. And then you had this interesting discussion around painkillers where you, uh, you, to my surprise, talked about quite different evidence around acetaminophen, ibuprofen and aspirin. Uh, if, if you've got a headache and you're pregnant, which of those should you go for and which should you avoid? So generally the advice is to, is to take acetaminophen. Um, and, you know, I think that the, the evidence on... Um, there are some negative impacts of aspirin in particular in, in pregnancy. Actually, we'll now hear some people sort of nosing around the idea that acetaminophen might also be not uh, not good, but I think that that evidence is, is pretty poor. So I think if you have a headache, uh, you know, if you feel bad, like Tylenol is fine. Tylenol is fine. And then there's things to do. Uh, dyeing your hair? Yes. Gardening? No. Are these things to, uh, to to worry about? Yeah. So I think uh, think dyeing your hair is is fine. Um, there was some like sort of research on hairdressers, which suggested that they were more likely to have birth complications. But I think it turned out that that uh, that evidence is almost certainly driven by differences in across women, not by the hairdressing or the hair dye specifically. Um, but gardening, you know, is is a little. Um, more complicated because uh, because actually can it is a risk factor for for toxoplasmosis, which is uh, which can be can be dangerous for the baby. So although that's not something people talk about much, uh, it, it that probably is something to be a little more cautious about during pregnancy. This is a soil born. It is parasite, a it is a right? it is a parasite which can live in the soil. Yeah, particularly if they're it, it's it's often carried by cats, can be carried by other animals, but often carried by cats and it and ends up in the soil because of cat poop basically yeah and i thought i thought it was interesting where you uh, ended up concluding that actually gardening is a higher risk for toxoplasmosis than emptying the cat litter box yes although if you want your spouse to empty the cat litter box you should just make them do that <laughs> Yeah, well, you have a you have a right to do that if you're uh, if you're carrying the child. Uh, what about uh, exercise? <laughs> what are your recommendations there? Uh, exercise is good. So I, I, you know, if you can exercise, there is no reason not to. Even actually at a pretty high level, you know, there's some discussion of like if you're an Olympic runner during the period in which you're running, there's somewhat less blood flow to the baby, but that doesn't seem to be a, a problem. Uh, and in general, you know, exercise, particularly. Well, not particularly, but uh, things like yoga or th there's a bunch of kinds of exercises that can be very effective. And I think that, um, that you know, staying, uh, staying at least vaguely in, in shape is helpful for, say, childbirth. 
Is airplane travel a risk? Uh, no, not at the and not at the levels that most of us that most of us do. So people think a lot about radiation, but the the kind amount of radiation you get, unless you're flying back and forth between between you and me, you know, many 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 times, you're not going to get the kind of radiation we'd be worried about. Sleeping on your back. Um, so this is a so this is a place where we keep revisiting it because I think the evolu- the data is really evolving. So women are told not to sleep on their back because of the risk of uh, because of the risk of, of stillbirth. And I think that, that in some ways the jury is still out on whether that's true. Um, most women do not find it especially comfortable to sleep on their back, so it may not come up that, that frequently. But I, I think probably there sleeping on your, on your side is, uh, is a better choice, at least until we know more. Uh, what about the recommendation of taking bed rest uh, to prevent uh, preterm labour? Uh, that is not a good recommendation. So this is a place where the, uh, where the evidence is very clear that there is not, uh, any, really any condition for which, uh, for which bed rest is a good choice. Uh, but, uh, it is still prescribed, at least in the U S quite, quite frequently. Um, it's something where I think we need to, we need to push back a little bit because it, it not only is not good at preventing preterm labor, but it also, uh, but it also has other negative consequences, like um, it, it, you just you lose time with your family or time with your at your job, and also there can be some uh, sort of like muscle. It, it can have some impacts on your muscles. Yeah, I think about the findings around uh, elderly people and falls. Most of the uh, the risk of falls seems to be the subsequent need to have bed rests and the complications that causes. Uh, presumably, if we think that spending a lot of time in bed is bad for elderly people, it's not obvious why we would think it was good for uh, for, for pregnant women. Absolutely. Uh, and then you, as you as you wrap up, uh, expecting better, you talk about labour itself. Um, what are your views on the controversial topics of? home births and epidurals? So, you know, with the epidural, I, th- I, I think that the evidence suggests that it, you know, it, maybe it slightly complicates some aspects of, of labor. It may, maybe it makes it a bit longer um, and has some, uh, and, you know, there are some things, some interventions that will have to happen if you have an epidural that wouldn't happen if you, if you did not. On the other hand, it's very effective pain relief. So I think that's, that's a, a kind of tra- trade-off that people can think about. Um, and you know, home birth. How much longer? Not very much, like fifteen minutes, um, which could be very bad in the in the moment. Um, but you know, all of these things are very uh, are very uncertain. And so, some people, um, you know, you you like. It's not like if you get an epidural for sure, you will be fifteen minutes longer. For some people, it speeds up labor. So there there's a a lot of uh, differences across women, even in the the way that they respond to that treatment. Um, the question of home birth, you know, I think is, is more complicated, partly because it differs so much across places. So, so in the U.S., it does look like mm. home births are, are a bit more risky. But that largely seems to be that a lot of what a lot of home births are with, like, you know, not certified midwives. So just like just people uh, who are not especially carefully trained. Um, and so that that's a mistake. But the question of like, what about a home birth with a trained midwife in a setting in which this is more common? I think the risks there would be smaller. 
So let's move now to your uh, recent book, Crib Chic, which uh, the last time I checked was uh, sitting atop the Washington Post's uh, best list of bestsellers. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you you again run through uh, a wonderful raft of, uh, of evidence, um, starting off with uh, some of the first decisions that uh, new parents have to make. Um, if it's a boy, should it be should the ch- child be circumcised? So this is this is much of what crib sheet is about is is in some ways just saying like hey you got to choose for yourself your preferences are important um, and so uh, so so circumcision is a good first example of this where you know there are some small risks to like very small risks like uh like infection uh and then there are some very small benefits like a lower risk of uh of penile cancer which is an extremely rare cancer um and so ultimately the question of whether you will do this or not uh should lie with just what like what do you think is what is going to work for your for your family and people have all kinds of preferences about this for religious reasons or you know because they want their kid's penis to look like his dad's penis these are all kinds of reasonable considerations uh that that you should make there isn't something in the data that's going to push you one way or the other about doing it what about uh swaddling to get the uh, get the baby to sleep well do we have good quality evidence on uh, on swaddling yeah i love the evidence on swaddling so so the idea with swaddling is that it can help the baby the baby sleep and this is actually a place where we have the opportunity to study it pretty carefully um, because you can see a baby, the same baby sleeping swaddled and not swaddled. So you don't have to rely on things like asking parents, how does your baby sleep and, and comparing them. So there's at least one very nice study where these, these researchers sort of took these babies into the lab. They swaddle them up in this, um, in this swaddle blanket that contains all these sensors on it. It's sort of like this weird robot baby and they, and they videotape them. <laughs> <laughs> and then they videotape them. And so they have all of this information. And so what they, what they find is basically, you know, when babies are sleeping at, at various times, they will kind of start to rouse a little bit. And then in the swaddle babies, those initial rousings are less likely to lead to further rousings and then awakeness. Whereas in the unswaddled baby, the same baby, if they're not swaddled, when they start fussing around a bit, they're, they're more likely to sort of end up crying. So, so this, is, this is mechanistic evidence, I guess you would say, for why swaddling helps babies uh, sleep longer. So swaddling is a good idea, except eventually you'll have to stop swaddling them, which is... Um, you know, uh, difficult. <laughs> so uh, one of the uh, the things with three little boys that uh, that I most uh, enjoy is this notion that maybe going off and playing in the dirt could be good for them. Uh, am I grounded by good in good science there, or am I really just being a, a, a lax parent? I think you're you're mostly grounded in good science. This is this is related to this uh, the idea of uh, of that like playing in the dirt will will raise your kids. Uh, kids' immunity and will have sort of other good um, impacts later. And I think we increasingly have uh, have evidence that that these kind of um, immune challenges or or these exposures are good for for longer term um, for longer term health. This is called the high something's called the hygiene hypothesis. The idea is that that if you uh, that people are sort of too clean and we should be less clean. Uh, and that that would be better for for long term health. So I certainly let my kids uh, play in the dirt. I'm not too, I'm not too neurotic about this. Yeah. And this is something where you you talk later in the book about the uh, uh, early exposure to things like uh, nuts. Yeah. Uh, and so you you say actually maybe we've got 
pretty good evidence that uh, ensuring that kids don't t- don't touch nuts early on could be increasing the the rate of allergies. Yeah, I'm so curious. Uh, in a, a little more about so that. in Australia, what is the recommendation about allergen exposure early on? Uh, relatively similar to, to to the US, and so we've seen uh, we don't we don't have it's not like Israel where. Uh, there is some standard peanut-based snack. Uh, schools are n- largely nut-free, uh, and recommendations are around avoiding contact with nuts early on. And, and we've, we're seeing rising nut allergies. Yeah. So we have. So uh, we don't have Gideon. Gideon lack. You know, not yet. So, so in the U.S., this has typically been the the recommendation that people should should avoid their should avoid exposing their kids to to nuts, peanuts in particular, but also all kinds of allergens because the idea was that that would increase the risk of of allergies. But actually, within the last few years, um, we have quite good evidence that um, from a from a randomized trial that exposing kids to nuts early and by early, I mean, like four months, basically, as soon as they're able to have solid food, exposing them to to nuts uh, decreases their risk of of being allergic. Um, And the effects here are very big. So this is a trial in which they took kids and half of them were exposed to, to peanuts early and half of them were, were they, they were told to wait until a year or something. And the, the difference in, the, there's about a 70% reduction in the risk of peanut allergies. This is a pretty high risk group. So something like, uh, like 17% of the kids uh, who were not exposed to peanuts ended up with a peanut allergy versus only 3% of the kids who were exposed. And so that's like, you, you rarely see effect sizes that large in data. Yeah. Uh, so you could get rid of three quarters of exactly. peanut allergies through early yeah. exposure. Yeah. Wow. So that is a really, and in the US, there's of course like now a bunch of startups that will like help you with how to expose your kids to peanuts through powders and stuff. Well, we're starting to uh, turn the temperature up to get into more controversial issues. So let's dive straight into one of the most controversial, uh, breastfeeding. What is the evidence? So, uh, so in the U.S., you're told that breastfeeding is like the most important thing you could possibly do and has all kinds of effects on you and your baby and, and you know, better friendships and all kinds of other, other things. Um, so I try to sort of dig into what is actually supported in the best data. Um, and I do find that there are some benefits that are, that are supported there in particular, um, a lower risk of some kinds of uh, rashes in the first year, um, lower risk of, of diarrhea, again, in the sort of early life, uh, and actually maybe some reductions in breast cancer risk for the mom. But, uh, but some quite of- Quite a significant these, reduction. Quite a right? significant, like about a yeah. Quarter. Yeah, it's like 25, 25%. So that's, that, those are some like, good reasons to, to do this. Um, but some of these claims about, say, um, the, the impacts of breastfeeding on IQ or obesity or long-term health for your, for your kid, those don't seem to be supported in the best data. So I think the, the picture is maybe a little bit more nuanced than, than, you might, than you might get. And I think particularly because a lot of women feel a lot of shame if breastfeeding doesn't work for them. Uh, I think this, the sort of seeing the data and saying, yeah, you know, this is a good thing to try and like we should be supportive and here it has these benefits. But if you can't do it, it doesn't mean your kid's going to be fat and stupid uh, because you couldn't, couldn't do this. And I think that that is kind of an important message. And you're relying here on quite different data than, uh, than many people who write about breastfeeding. Uh, what is it about the, 
Belarus randomised trial that marks it out as being different from the observational studies we have? Yeah, so I, so I, the, the sort of most of the data we have on breastfeeding is from these observational studies where you compare women who are the children of women who breastfeed to the children of women who, who do not. Um, and that is subject to, to a lot of these kind of concerns we mentioned, for example, the case of coffee, that, that the kind of women who breastfeed tend to be better educated, richer uh, than, than those who, who do not, and that, that can bias our, our results. Um, and so I spend a lot of time relying on sort of two kinds of data. One is that there's a large randomized trial that was run in Belarus in the 1990s in which some women were encouraged to breastfeed and some were not, and we can use that um, because that encouragement is random, we can use that study to, to draw more stronger causal conclusions. The other thing I, I do is I, within these observational studies, I try to be more careful about which of them I, uh, which of them I give more weight to. So, so in particular, uh, some of these studies are like comparing siblings. And some of them have much better sets of controls. And so I, I rely more on those than on some of the studies which, which are able to, to do less adjustments for, for, uh, for differences across moms. And uh, you, you talk also about one of the other big controversies around uh, sleep training, uh, the notion of cried out sleeping uh, and, uh, and whether or not that uh, is effective or whether perhaps it, it uh, scars children in the, in the long term. Uh, what do you find about uh, the efficacy of getting kids just to cry it out as a way of learning to sleep? Yeah, so, so the first thing is that, that letting kids cry it out is, will on average, improve their sleep and will on average improve the sleep for the parents and also has some pretty good impacts on parents, uh, de on depression and marital satisfaction. So there are actually a bunch of reasons why these kind of cry it out methods and, and improving kids' sleep are good for the family overall. People, of course, worry that, you know, this is going to scar their kid forever and that they're going to not ever be attached to them and they're going to hate them. And I will say, you know, as someone who has let some kids cry it out, definitely is very difficult to do in the moment. Um, but there isn't any evidence to suggest that this is bad for your kid. Uh, in the long term, we have studies which have followed kids for, you know, until they're five or six. They just, the kids who are cried out look just like the kids who, who did not. And if anything, in the short run, uh, it looks like the kids are kind of happier, although that may just be reflecting what their parents say about whether they're, they're happy because the parents are happier. Um, but I, I think, you know, it, it doesn't mean that this is for everybody. So some people are just like, this is like, you know, I'm not, they don't want to do this. The kid is sleeping with them. There's various reasons you might not want to do this. But if, if it is something that, that you think would work for you, or if you're really struggling on, on sleep stuff, this is worth trying. And you have what I think is one of the most biting lines in the book. Uh, you say, the argument against sleep training is theoretical. I can almost hear you spitting the word, the word out there oh. from an empiricist point of view. <laughs> it's theoretical. Yeah, I mean, people say, you know, well, this could be bad. Sure, anything could be bad. It could be good. You know, I mean, that's the problem with theory. You need data. Yeah. Uh, sleeping positions. Uh, Dr. Spock in the 1980s was uh, telling us to, uh, kids had to be on their stomachs. Now we say kids have to be on their backs. Um, and you know, there's a, a similar conversation going on as to whether 
co-sleeping is acceptable or not. Uh, what did you find when you looked at the evidence as to whether it's all right to have the kid in the bed? I remember we never did it for our number one and we did it all the time for our number three, which uh, is either says something about our, uh, our experience as parents or, or else just how exhausted you yeah. are when you've got your third. Yes, I cannot imagine. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, the co-sleeping stuff is, is complicated because I think we, we see sort of very strong views on both sides with some people saying, you know, this is the most natural way to, to sleep with your kid and, and everybody should do it. And then on the other side, people saying, you know, this is incredibly dangerous and, and you know, you definitely should never do it. Uh, and I, I think the evidence is, is really in, kind of truthfully in the middle of those. So, so one thing is there are some more and less safe ways to do this. So we talked about smoking in pregnancy. This is a place this comes up again. If you're smoking, if your partner's smoking, if you're drinking heavily before bed, if you have a lot of covers and stuff in the bed, that makes co-sleeping dangerous. And in those circumstances, it is, it is actually probably not a good idea to, to co-sleep. But if you're going to do this in, a, in sort of the safest way, so not drinking heavily, not smoking uh, in a sort of bed with less stuff, there is still a little bit of risk, but it is very small relative to you know, some of the other risks, like driving a car that you're probably taking every day without thinking about it. So, so I think that does mean that, that it's, it, there, there's a component of this which is, is parental choice and is what, you know, what is going to work for your, for your family. I am guessing many people co-sleep more with their later children because they're, you know, it's just like that's the way that your family can get some sleep and you need to be rested because, say, you have other children around or just you need to be doing stuff. And you have a really interesting observation in there about uh, something that I'd never thought of as being uh, such a big risk, sofa sleeping. Say a bit more about that. Yeah, so, so uh, sleeping on a sofa is probably the most, that is the, like the most dangerous sleep environment uh, because, you know, if, you're, if you fall asleep sitting up with a kid on the sofa, it's easy to, to sort of slide down. And because there's a lot of cushions and soft, uh, soft stuff, those are, those are very risky. And I think part of what's very tragic about this in some cases is that people will sometimes sleep with their kid on the sofa because they are trying to avoid sleeping with them in the bed. So they're trying to stay up and sit up and then there can be you know, tragic consequences of that. So I think that that is both something to, to avoid, but also is, a, is another caution about being careful about the messages that we, that we send, that there are, you know, there are places where we should be sending a more nuanced message. Like if this is the only way you can sleep, please do it as safely as possible. Uh, as opposed to like under no circumstances should you do this and then, you know, leading to people doing things which are even less safe. What about other activities on the uh, on the sofa? Is uh, if you have the TV on with baby uh -huh. Einstein going going there, uh, are you going to turn your uh, your child into the next Einstein? Uh, unfortunately, baby Einstein is not the way to turn your ch child into the next Einstein. Um, babies cannot learn. Babies cannot learn from videos. Um, there's the research on this is kind of funny because they they will give some parents the uh, they'll give parents the. Uh, these videos and, and then ask them, you know, well, did your kid like learn words from this? And parents are like, oh, yes, my kid definitely learned a lot of words from this. Like it was so great. Uh, but then it turns out uh, that actually like when they look at them, you know, all kids learn words, even the kids who don't watch <laughs> Baby Einstein. So so video is not the way to yeah. teach your kid. 
Uh, is that true of uh, Sesame Street and uh, other programs directed at, say, three to five-year-olds? Yeah, so three to five-year-olds can learn from TV. And actually, there's some interesting uh, research, much of which is by economists, which is about, um, which is about how Sesame Street increases, increased when it first came on, actually increased school readiness for some, for some kids. So actually, it looks like there are things you can, your kids can learn, which, of course, is a caution because uh, they can learn from other television shows, not Sesame Street also. So you've got to be a little careful what they watch. My recollection is that the biggest effects, I'm not sure whether I'm thinking of Jesse's paper or, or the Sesame Street studies, uh, were among families from non-English speaking backgrounds, uh, suggesting that some of the school readiness is having English on the TV in a household where perhaps Spanish is spoken. Yeah, so I think that that's right. I think that comes out in both in both Jesse's work, but also uh, in also in the in the Sesame Street stuff that it, that in general these kind of like th- these things are more important for for kids from more disadvantaged backgrounds and or backgrounds where the the sort of parent um, help on school readiness is not going to be as as significant. Uh, staying with the uh, controversial topics, uh, parents who work, having both parents work, and, and also the impacts of daycare, what did you find about that? So I think the data here is very reassuring in the sense that we, uh, that we worry a lot about, you know, well, what is the best for the kid? What, like, and, and the answer is like, it's a, these are all fine for the kid. It's fine for you to, to, for both parents to work. The kids who have both parents work don't have any different outcomes on average than kids who uh, who have a parent who stays at home, and and I think that 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 opens up the the possibility that we can say ask parents what they want and think about what is going to work uh, is going to work for them, uh, which is is something that I don't think we do enough. So actually, particularly with moms in the U.S., uh, there there is almost never an an emphasis on you know what what do you want to do. And so, so one of the things I say in the book is like you know you should ask yourself like what do you uh, what do you want to do? Do you want to work and, or not? And, and when I've talked to women about that, they've said, you know, it's amazing. Like no one ever asked me that, you know, I would, I went back to work. This is something mm. you're going to be doing like every day for like your whole life. And, and you never thought about whether you would like to do it or not. And I think this is just illustrative of some of the issues that we have in this early parenting stuff that, that people are just really not thinking about what works for the family overall. They're, they're kind of solely focused on, uh, on the baby, which of course is in some ways the most important, but also something where we, we, we do need to, there is a whole family. There is not just, just one person. And that's again, I guess, coming back to your economist training, the notion of uh, trade-offs of uh, whether or not the effects for the child are small negative or small positive, you'd want to weigh that against an effect for the rest of the family, which might be large positive. Exactly, exactly. I understand you didn't want to write the discipline chapter at first, and uh, it was your editor who talked talked you into it. Tell us a little bit about what you ended up discussing with that, particularly that notion of discipline as education. Yeah, so um, so I had I had just thought that there would not be any good evidence on on discipline, um, and and but she said, you know, please look look into this. I'm sure that you know maybe we can find something, and uh, and it turned out that that actually there is some good uh, some good evidence on what kinds of discipline is most um, is most effective and particularly uh, around the idea that that discipline should be um, 
should be about trying to to uh, convey to your kid what is the right behavior, trying to educate them about what is the right behavior. And there's a lot of stuff on the importance of consistency and saying, you know, following through on your threats, um, which should be, to be clear, not physical threats, but, you know, removal of privileges. So if you say, you know, if you keep hitting your sister, you're going to get a timeout, then you do have to give them a timeout. Um, but there's there's some evidence that that kind of approach really does work. So some kind of warning approach, like, you know, that's a warning, that's a second warning, that's a timeout. There, there's good evidence behind those approaches. What there is not good evidence for is is spanking. So uh, so discipline as it is uh, as it is practiced in an evidence-based way should not include physical punishment, which has been shown to probably have counter counterproductive effects, but certainly not to have good effects on kids. One of the other interesting lessons of it for uh, uh, parents who like to overthink is is the notion that children aren't adults and sometimes over-explaining what's going on can be counterproductive. Yeah. Which- was insightful for me. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think I, I, I do this all the time that I want, like, I, I'm a person who likes explanations. And so I kind of have this instinct with my kids, like, okay, let me explain to you, like, why that behavior was not right. And, you know, why don't you want to keep your shirt on? Because every, like, adults keep their shirt on. And I think a lot of these say, hey, you know, you got to recognize that even your, you know, even your older kid, even like an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old is not an adult. And expecting them to react like an adult is... Uh, is counterproductive and that some of this discipline stuff is just like taking a step back for yourself and being like, okay, what can I reasonably expect uh, from my kid here? So thinking about kids overall, economists have uh, this sort of model of uh, humans as looking to maximize their uh, their overall happiness. Uh, and yet we have pretty solid evidence that uh, parents are less happy than non-parents uh, and that if you follow the same people over time, that their kind of point in time happiness uh, while they've got kids is, uh, is significantly lower. Uh, so how do we explain the, the paradox of, of people having kids? Uh, are we in fact not trying to maximize happiness? Is there something wrong with how we're measuring happiness in these, in these studies? Uh, what, do, what, do we learn for, what do we learn from the research and what does that tell us about parenting more broadly? Yeah, so it, I mean, it definitely is the case that in these happiness studies, um, p- you know, people with kids are less happy. You can see data, I talk some about data on marital satisfaction, which sort of declines in the early years of, of parenting. Um, I, you know, there's some good work on this. There's a book called All Joy, No Fun, which is a nice book about the idea that that kids are um, kids are not fun, uh, but I think they're they're mm. but there's a there's a thing that all of that misses, which is of course like if you ask somebody who's a parent like what is the best thing about your life, they will probably tell you it's their kids, even though in the moment it is it is sometimes the the more frustrating thing, and so I think there's a there's a sense in which studying happiness like this in this sort of like moment to moment way does miss the some something about the broader picture of you know what um of like what you're getting out of your kids and i think the other thing it sometimes misses is i find you know with my kids the the highs with the kids the 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 good moments are so good uh and it isn't that they happen all you know all the time um but the 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 moments when they do happen are so much better than any other thing in my life that I, I think in some ways, the, even, a, even a happiness survey that was pinging you very frequently might miss those moments. Um, but those moments are so, 
so amazing. And so I, I think there's something that we're, we're kind of missing about the, um, the, the measurement of, of happiness in the experience of, of parenting. But I also think that, that, you know, parents put a lot of pressure on themselves and it probably does lower the amount of, of fun that you're having. And I guess one of, in some ways, one of the hopes of, of the book would be to, to take some of this pressure out and take some of the, the sort of feeling like I have to be constantly performing as a parent and parenting should just be about trying to achieve the maximum outcome for my kid as opposed to like some of parenting should be like enjoying my time with my kids. Right, right. I mean, I think about the evidence around uh, uh, natural growth parenting compared to helicopter parenting. Helicopter parenting seems to produce better outcomes for kids, but perhaps natural growth parenting produced, produces better outcomes for parents. Yeah. And I'm not sure helicopter parenting is, I mean, I, I'm, I think the jury's out a little bit on, on whether the helicopters and the snowplows and all the different kinds of vehicle parenting we could be doing is, is better. Mm. <laughs> So I want to wrap up, Emily, by asking you a few questions about yourself. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> like, how much time do we have? Um, you know, I think, uh, I think probably just that it will get better. I don't think I was a very happy teenager. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I actually I struggle with, with how I'm going to parent in that, uh, in, in that age range because I didn't find it to be a great... Uh, a great personal experience. And I, I think when I look back on it, I wish I had known like, okay, you know, you're going to go to college and, and get a job and, and, you know, there are going to be people who, who you, uh, who you like, who are going to, going to be your people. You just have to, you got to wait. What's something you used to believe, but no longer do? Um, I think I used to before I wrote this book, I think I used to believe that data would would always answer my questions, and I I think that this experience has been humbling in the sense of, uh, of kind of telling me you know what like you don't you don't have all the answers and your approaches are not always gonna, uh, gonna be right, and I I think it's made me a little bit less uh, bossy at least around these these issues. I'm still bossy about everything else. So you're a little little more humble than that. A little more humble data, when it yeah. comes to data. You've also done something quite unusual for an economist in uh, in writing a paper which effectively debunked an earlier piece of your own research uh, around the impact of hepatitis B on what Amartya Sen referred to as the missing women in developing nations. Can you tell us a little bit about about that the, the, that pair of papers, how they came about, and what it was like to to do that backflip effectively? Sure. So, so when I was in graduate school, um, I wrote this uh, this this paper, uh, which got a lot of attention, which was about the idea that that maybe some of the imbalance in in gender across populations was in fact about um, about hepatitis B and and differences in in birth genders at birth associated with that with that disease. Uh, rather than say infanticide or sex selective abortion, which was the sort of prevailing, uh, the prevailing view, um, and the paper got a lot of attention. It got a lot of criticism. Um, it ultimately, some evidence came out from some other people that suggested it might not be right. Uh, and I then went and collected some more evidence. I think, to be fair, hoping that I would turn out to be right. Um, but it seemed like I was not. Uh, and so I published a second paper, which basically said, you know what, like this first paper was not, uh, was not right. Um, and you know, I'm, I am proud that I did that, I guess. So I'm, I think that that was the right, 
that was the right thing thing to do at the at the time. Um, it was a very very difficult uh, experience. I mean, nobody likes to be wrong, and I was wrong in this very public way. And um, you know, and I I think that when I think back on the first paper, kind of from the standpoint of someone who's now been doing this for for a long time, I definitely should have done more of this the work of the that I did later in service of the of the first paper and I think that um that you know that was a that was a good lesson um perhaps not not an easy uh not an easy one but you know ultimately that that episode was like many episodes in our lives which are which are we look back on and kind of as difficult ones it, I think it was an important it was an important growing experience and just to provide the listener with a, a little bit more context, your your first G- Journal of Political Economy paper looked at the correlation at a national level between hepatitis B rates and sex ratios. Uh, your economics letters follow-up involved a study in which you actually had the hepatitis B, w- whether or not mum and dad had hepatitis B, and then you looked at the gender of the children. So you were able to to, to go straight, da- straight down to the individual level using that Chinese data. Uh, did did you have misgivings at the time about doing that study, and and what would your recommendation be for others, other economists whose work is being challenged and who have the inclination that I think most in the most scholars have when their work is challenged to hunker down, defend the results? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was. I did have misgivings about doing it. For one thing, it it took a lot of time and was very expensive, um, and you know, but I I. You know, partly I thought that maybe I would turn out to be right, um, but you know, I understood that there was a chance I would, I would turn out to be wrong, and sort of felt like I have to, I have to close this loop. Like we, we weren't going to make um, that. That there ultimately the I felt that it needed to almost like end, like in one way or or the other. Um, and I think there is an instinct to just sort of like defend your work to to the last. Um, to the last drop. And, you know, that's, uh, that is a very human, human instinct, but I think it, it, I think we have seen some of this in economics where there's been that we've sort of like these, these conflicts have, have drawn out in a way that is, that is, uh, that is not productive and not, and not focused. And I think we might be, we might be better off as a profession if we tried to resolve those a bit faster. Emily, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, probably Pilates. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but I like have, uh, I have like an hour a week in which I like go and do Pilates and I'm very, um, I'm very, uh, strict about keeping that time. And I think that, that it's not very much time, but it is, it is important to me that I have like some time in which I say, okay, this is something I'm just doing for, for me. I'm not doing it for my job or for my, or for my family. It's just for me. And I think that that's, that is very, very mental health uh, valuable for for my for my personal setting. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, coffee in the morning is about as as guilty as it gets at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, I I I think in, I think kind of my husband actually. Um, you know, my husband is is a really. Uh, really ethical and principled person, sometimes to the point of uh, tremendous frustration for me. Um, but you know, I, I, I think when you live with somebody for, for this 
long, it's, it's hard not to have some of them, uh, you know, rub off on, on you, or at least to, to get a sense of their, of their, the, their value of their, of their values. And I, and he is really, really, really honest and really, uh, does not, does not back down when he believes in something. And I, I think that's, that's something I've tried to internalize. That's beautiful. Uh, Emily Oster's uh, two books, uh, Expecting Better and Crib Sheet. I cannot recommend them highly enough. A terrific gift for uh, anyone you know who is expecting or has just given birth. Thank you. Emily, and Andrew, thanks so should, much for taking sh- the time today. I should say that the new book is out uh, in Australia next week, like officially. Fantastic. So. Fantastic. Which may well be last week by right. the time this book, uh, this uh, podcast okay. goes to air. <laughs> but uh, it will be in, uh, in, in good bookstores and uh, good book websites everywhere. Thanks Thank again, you, Andrew. Emily. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life.